Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis, the podcast that talks about DNA discoveries and how they change people's lives. Usually I'm talking to people about major changes in identity related to who their parents are or not. Uh, I'm not usually talking about people who find out they're more Italian than they suspected and now they want to eat more spaghetti. But if that feels like a major change to you, by all means, shoot me a message. Let's talk about it. I'm Eve Sturgis. Uh, usually, usually though, I'm interested in exploring the world of misattributed parentage. People find out that one or both parents are not their parents uh, for all sorts of reasons. Reasons that make sense, reasons that don't make sense. There are misunderstandings involved and there's betrayal and there are parents who meant well, parents who didn't mean well. Um, If you can imagine any combination of events and reasons for finding out a person isn't who they thought they were, that combination exists, believe me. So that's what we're really here to do. We're here to talk about it. So hey everybody, Um, if I've done my planning and calculating correctly, today is July 2nd, which means we're well into summer, Uh, and I'm recording this uh, a little bit earlier than July 2nd, but I'm going to go ahead and bet that it's really hot out in LA, and it's going to be hot for the July 4th weekend. Um, For those of you who don't know, July 4th is America's big celebration of our independence from England. Um... People celebrate with barbecues and picnics and outdoor activities like swimming and boating. Some people have lawn games. But in the evening, my favorite part is we do fireworks. Do you know, my friends, about the 4th of July in Los Angeles? That is where I live. And let me tell you, if there is one thing that my neighborhood over here on the east side does right, it is the 4th of July. I look forward to this weekend all year long. Um, It is the best display of fireworks, mostly illegal fireworks in the world. We have neighbors that shoot off the hugest, brightest, loudest explosions in the street uh, and off their roofs and from parking lots and backyards. It is so much fun. I love it so much. We, uh, we have a deck behind our house and it puts us in this like perfect spot on our hill to see things far and wide on all sides. Um, you sort of really have to be there to see it. And uh, we have, we've invited a lot of friends and family over the years to experience it with us. And I think this year we'll probably keep it to our family of five. It's not the biggest deck. Um, and Lily, my oldest, she is here for her first 4th of July with me in her life. <laughs> um, she usually spends... 4th of July uh, on the East Coast, but this time she will be here. So we want to show her what um, like this real LA holiday is like. But I don't know. I'm, I'm recording this, you know, weeks in advance. So maybe we will invite people over. I don't know. It's Kaylin probably has already invited people and I don't even know it. Um, so whatever, the more the merrier. It will all work out. I wanted, let's see. So I wanted to talk a little bit about America and being an American and my thoughts and feelings about patriotism. Uh, But I'm actually going to skip that this time. Uh, I'm going to cut myself short because I want to get to this actual episode and the actual reasons we're here, which is DNA discoveries. Uh, It makes all the sense in the world that I would talk about this book on the weekend of the 4th of July. This book is called American Baby by Gabrielle Glaser. I had the pleasure of reading this book before talking to Gabrielle. And let me tell you, um, there are two things at play here. One is the NPE phenomenon and how many people are discovering they were adopted and no one told them. And the second thing here is the adoption industry of the United States. And I'm using the word industry very literally. Um, and, and especially what was going on in the era of the baby boom, right? Like post-World War II. So if you think you know what was going on or you imagine you can speculate, I'm pretty confident that you don't actually know what was going on uh, unless, you, unless you come from a specialty in this field. Uh, but like when taken into the context of the NPE community and the growing number of people discovering how they were adopted, it is just 
yet another example, another layer of how complex this issue is and how the NPE issue is and misattributed parentage and no one exists and not one incident occurred in a vacuum and not, you know, no one, no man is an island. Uh, and this book, so this book, you know, it tells a story of one woman who becomes pregnant at age 17 and it went, and what happened? It, it's very compelling. It follows, it also follows like the real history of adoption, weaves them together, um, and invites readers to imagine the long-term effects that it's had on individuals and, and a society, what it means for us, um, as a people, um, especially during this time of NPE phenomenon. So, uh, I got to sit down with the writer. It was another very surreal moment for me. I'm just consider myself a very humble podcaster. Uh, I'm just in my Los Angeles basement. It's not soundproof, as you all know. Uh, so it was, it was, it was wild. It was wild. It was really fun. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunities this podcast has been affording me lately. So I'm going to go ahead and play you our talk together. This is the podcast, Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis. I'm talking with author and journalist Gabrielle Glaser about her book, American Baby. You're Gabrielle Glaser. You wrote American Baby. And I have to tell you, that people in the and I come from the NPE world, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you know what that is now. Um, and this book was it was sort of it was circulate. People were talking about it, you know, on the in the in the support groups. And I saw it, and I um, I was like, oh, good, and you know, another book, and kind of put it on a distant one day one day I'll read it reading list that I have that always, and um, and then. Pamela contacted me and sent me the book and I was excited to, I was excited for lots of reasons, but I was excited um, that, that I didn't even know it would apply. I didn't even know. I honestly didn't know what it was about. All I saw was that people were reading it and it had something to do with adoption. And so I was like, um, well, that doesn't exactly apply to me. <laughs> um, so started reading it. Um, have to, yeah, can't, I don't even know. Could not put it down. I'm not quite finished. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm totally blown away. So I don't want to. I don't want to talk about the whole book because I want people to read it. Um, so I don't want to tell anybody what everything that goes on. But but it is it is a book about adoption. But that is not what this book is about. <laughs> this book is if I, if I may say so. Um, this book. It's, it's about the adoption industry, but it's about um, American society and it's about the baby boom and it's really about people and humans um, and women, young, young women. Um, and so I, I have my list of questions to ask you, but I have to say that like I, um, I even was, was messaging with some, some groups of, of NPE and LDAs and um, DCs that I um, kind of am in regular communication with. And I kept saying like, you guys, I can't stop crying. Like this book just like crushed me. And I'm not somebody that I'm a very emotional person, but generally if a book weaves story with historical information or, um, like, like, you know, narrative with fact, or like, I, I can, I can stay a little bit distant, but this time, um, this time I just couldn't do it. And my, um, it could be because I have a daughter that's 17. It could be that I had her when I was 22 and unmarried. Um, and those were just two. It was just sudden. All of a sudden, this whole concept was too close to home. Um, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful and it's powerful. Um, yeah. I'm, I kind of know what some of the things that happen, but I'm just really still sort of on the edge of my seat for Margaret. And, um, so I'm going to, um, have other people, um, responded with had emotional experiences like that with you, with this book? Have they? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for that. I really appreciate that, um, introduction to your, 
in that introduction and, and also for sharing with me your reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, adoptees, I've heard from, well, I've had a lot of emotional reactions. Um, adoptees, particularly who were um, adopted in the baby scoop era, many mm-hmm. people have contacted me from who were adopted through that same agency, the Louise Wise mm-hmm. Agency mm-hmm. in New York City. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, many people have reacted, many adoptees have reacted with shock and bewilderment, wondering, you know, without giving too much away, we can, I don't know if we're going to get to this or not, but, um, you know, I I discovered with the help of of adoptee rights activists, I discovered some really serious um, barbaric experiments that had taken place on adoptees surrendered through Louise Wise Services. And Mm -hmm. many people have reacted to that with utter shock and horror, wondering if they were part of those, you know, part of that experimentation. They want to know if it's possible to find out if they were. Of course, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's not. Um, We can get to that too. Uh, Birth mothers have also responded very emotionally Many women from who are not politically active in the adoptee rights movement, they may have seen the New York Times book review or heard me on a podcast and then bought the book. I've heard, read the book. I've heard from many women who have been unclear about whether they should try to reunite with their lost sons and daughters. And I think for them, it gave them an under, it, it, it lessened the loneliness maybe that they've mm-hmm. and the shame that they've been experiencing for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, I heard from one woman, an extraordinary woman in Maine who said that her life really mirrored Margaret's in many aspects. And she couldn't, you know, she was told to forget that she'd mm-hmm. ever had her son. Mm-hmm. And of course she, she, she couldn't and it gave her the um, wherewithal, I believe, to, to try to locate her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've heard from a lot of people mm-hmm. and it's really yeah, well, crying and, and, and um, moving and um, it, writing that book was the challenge and the honor of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a lot, there was a lot there. Yeah. I could imagine what that was like to have sort of, well, you can tell me, I need to open my, <laughs> I wrote out questions, but then in all of my turning off and turning back on the computer, sure, sure, sure. they've disappeared. So I'm going to find them. Um, but I can, I, I mean, I want to know what the process was like, but I imagine there was a sort of can of worms that you opened or a Pandora's box experience of thinking you were looking a little bit into the adoption industry and you had you had in the beginning you talk about being inspired by this friend of yours mm-hmm. um uh who was an adoptee and um was did you just was it just bigger and more than you ever imagined what you were gonna honor? yes it was much bigger than I had imagined I covered adoption and assisted reproductive technology as a beat in the early 2000s in Oregon so I was aware um, having, well, let me back up. So one of the first stories that I ever covered as a reporter about adoption involved the following. I was in my Portland coffee shop and I saw a flyer. These were the days before social media. And I saw Mm -hmm. a flyer that said it had um, yellow stick figures, highlighter yellow stick figures with Asian features and black hair. And I thought, what? This is so racist. What is what? What is this depiction? And then the words of the flyer. Then I looked up and it said, "Are you an angry Korean American adoptee? If so, so are we. Call this number. Here's a support group." Hmm. So I called the number. I pulled out the little, you know, one of those little things you tabs. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, and uh, my editor and I. Um, just decided, wow, this is a really interesting story. Oregon was the center 
the birthplace of uh, transracial international adoption. There is an agency called Holt based in Eugene that began um, Korean American adoptions during the Korean War in the 1950s. And there was a whole history of social engineering and Cold War politics involved in that, that was riveting. But for this one story, I interviewed four different adoptees and we, I didn't get in the way of their words. I didn't try to craft it into a story. We just let, it was one of those in their own words pieces with beautiful portrait photography as well. And the response to that story, which I think ran in 2003, maybe 2004, I think it was late 2003, was so overwhelming. My, in, my inbox, I was inundated the next day with emails from um, Korean American adoptees, but also from adoptive parents who were outraged. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's on my list of questions. <laughs> Absolutely mm-hmm. outraged. They said, how dare they? How dare you? Oh, and the, and, and, and the, the, the adoptees were, they were angry about their experiences. They mm-hmm. were angry about mm-hmm. being deracinated. They were angry about their losses. They were angry about not knowing Korean. They were angry about not having access to food they liked their whole lives. It was, and it, it just opened my eyes so much about the narrative of adoption. And I realized, and I had a wonderful editor, he's just an incredible guy. And we, you know, with that response, we realized, wow, we've hit a nerve. We've, we've touched on something that is sacred in our society. We have this belief that adoption is a beautiful thing. And, you know, the, the response from the adoptive parents was, we rescued these kids. How dare, how dare they? How dare you? They threatened to cancel their subscriptions. I mean, it really <laughs> yeah. was, you, you're not allowed to talk about that. You and really so hit a nerve. I really hit a nerve. And then I really started examining what adoption meant. I spent quite a long time, maybe a couple of years, investigating what really happens, what the research behind it was, the losses, what it meant to have an open adoption, which, you know, that's another can of worms. Um, But I, so to answer your question, I had a deep sort of understanding of the, um, of the parameters, but I didn't know once I returned to this story in 2015, 2016, I didn't realize the breadth, the depth, the deceit. I knew that it was a deceitful industry and I knew that it was a lucrative industry. And I knew that there was a lot of money made on the transaction of selling baby. And let's be honest, Mm -hmm. the transaction of, of providing an adoptive family with a baby there's money involved and Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize I didn't realize for myself how powerfully um uh money driven the whole enterprise was so I hope I answered did I I answer your question absolutely absolutely I think yeah I think you're yeah you're yeah you're completely I think you're saying that you you had been studying it for a while. And then as you dove in for this book, it just was bigger, bigger and bolder than you had imagined it was. Um, and I think for most people, I think most people, myself included, and you just acknowledged it about yourself, we all have this um, this one particular we all we all who are not adoptees um, have this like one idea of what adoption is. And it never occurred to me that that was a created narrative. Like it ne- I thought that I just accepted it as part of the fabric of, of life or of America or of society or of altruism. I just thought, um, I, t- I, I keep thinking that my, that I have a really open mind and I have a really broad imagination and I can, you know, I'm pretty open to, to all possibilities. And then within this NPE experience for the past two years for me or three years, it's like I just continue to to find another layer of something I haven't thought about, about pe- people, about people, the people around me. And um, I thought 
also coming to your book, I thought, well, I know two stories. I know one, I know of a person who, who, who pursued finding her, um, the child she'd given up for adoption and was devastated to find out that, that her life had not been so wonderful. And, and it, um, that story blew my mind. I heard, I heard it in college. I, and um, it totally blew my mind. And I thought it was unique. You know, mm. like I thought until I tell Gabrielle this story, <laughs> when, I, when I read this book, I'll know about this one story. Um, and then I know somebody else that had a, um, a really intense experience having a child very young um, that she did not give up for adoption, but the child um, uh, uh, became ill and died, passed away. And I, I am constantly thinking about the way that when you meet people, you don't know what they've been through. And this, by the time she was 22, she had already had a baby, been married, lost the baby and been divorced. And, and she's, um, and I just like, I just think, I think about her a lot. I think about that story a lot and this book. So I thought, I thought, oh, well, I, I really have thought of these things. And then this book was so much bigger. And I, and I thought, oh, my one unique story. And then I'm reading and you've got numbers in there in the millions, millions of young girls, um, young women ha having their babies taken from them in all sorts of different ways, coerced from them, um, or they were manipulated into giving them up. Um, and then what has happened to these children and nightmare. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. And I hope I don't sound too dark and heavy and doomsday. It's an excellent book. I really recommend reading it. It's, it's, um, a, a, a fun and, and sort of intriguing and compelling narrative that carries it along as well. Um, so was, what was the biggest surprise for you going through um, this? Because you've written a few books before and you've done, you're a writer, you've done, and you're a journalist. So, um, so some of this process was practiced. So what, what surprised you about it? What surprised me, there were many things that surprised me. Number one, the numbers, um, at least between 1946 and 19, the early 1970s, 1972, um, an estimated 3.5 million women conceived babies out of wedlock. And, you know, there was no birth control, even for married couples at that time, until Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965 legalized the pill um, for, for married couples, think about that. Um, there was no sex education, of course, there was no birth control. Uh, I just said that, sorry. Um, and no abortion. And the sexual revolution was simmering and a lot of young women got pregnant. There was privacy in new suburban homes. Uh, there was privacy in the backseat of the family Buick. And these children who were conceived were a problem that was supposed to go away. And they helped fill the need during the conservative years of the baby boom of couples who were unable to conceive, they helped them have the perfect American family. And this was supposed to just be the best solution for everyone involved. And I was unaware of the secrecy of it. I was unaware that in most cases, um, with the exception of Alaska and, and Kansas, adoptees in every other state were issued an original birth certificate that was sealed to everyone but state officials or adoption agency officials. And then they were issued an amended document listing their adoptive name and their adoptive mother and father as the original parents in its stead as the, as, as the, the, the document that gave people their origin stories. And as somebody who is, who is an historian, who looks at history, who looks at documents, I was blown away by the I mean, fact. That is one of the things that is just ripple, I don't know, ripping, rippling, rushing, like compounding through the community right now is people discovering their birth certificates were the second document right. 
and they're falsified. And Blow, exactly. These are federal documents that have been falsified. They are lies. And that to me, the stolen origin story of millions of these men and women and for their birth parents and for their adoptive parents, for everyone involved. This was a, this was a foundational lie, a social, a gigantic social experiment that was built on, upon a foundational lie. So that part of it was shocking. The part of uh, adoptees still in 41 states unable to be able to access those, those documents. I mean, it is an ongoing legal battle. Adoptee rights, uh, um, ability to, you know, the, 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 the rights of adoptees, the human and civil right of adoptees to be able to, to obtain their original birth certificates is, is, I can't believe anybody's still fighting about it, but they are. I have a question. Mm. I, I, and th that I thought of when I was reading the book and, and you're reminding me of it now. Um, and actually it comes up whenever I talk to, to late discovery adoptees, especially, but so, so the, so the government changes the birth certificate mm -hmm. and then the original one is quote unquote sealed. Mm -hmm. Who is that for? And like, if no one can get to it, if it's sealed, like what, I mean, is, is it just because sealed is a more, um, civilized for lack of a better word, um, word than burning? Like, why didn't they just burn? Like if no one can get to them, right. when, when and how and why and where would anybody need that sealed document? That is such a great question. And, you know, part of the, 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 the um, history of that is that in the 1920s and 30s, there were baby thieves. There was one particular woman who operated out of Memphis who would steal babies, literally snatch them from women in homes throughout the South who were too poor. Her name was Georgia Tan. And she told mothers that she was going to take their sick children to the doctor. And then she would later report that the children had died. She snatched babies from nursery schools. She snatched babies from women who were still under anesthesia after having just given birth. And she had a really elaborate um, scheme to sell those babies to prominent celebrities, politicians, um, in from Joan Crawford to the sister of the Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas. And if you wanted a baby in those days, there was no, the, the only way to get one was to adopt. There weren't, if you couldn't conceive, there were no assisted reproductive assisted reproductive technologies that could help you. So, and if you had the money, you would just buy a baby. And that secretive system began in California. It then um, sort of rippled throughout the country. It started in Tennessee, rippled throughout the country. California was one of the first biggest states to adopt it. New York was uh, right along 19, mid 1930s. And it was, to cover the tracks, that secretive system was to cover the tracks of black market babies. And yet the laws, those anachronistic laws put in place to protect a crime are still, we still have them. California still has them, Texas still has them, Florida still has them, you name it, Virginia. Um, they're in place throughout the country. And who are those secret sealed birth certificates for? That is a great question. That is a great question. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I just said, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like this is all doom and gloom, but this is really heavy stuff. This is really, um, the thought, the thought of, of babies being is, uh, uh, is is horrifying and i think one thing that that struck me is that i think probably if you'd asked me did i know that that there were 
you know, did, did I know about baby snatching in the olden days? I would have said yes. Um, but the dates that you're saying, I mean, it, it, this whole thing was happening up into the 70s. People, I'm talking to people who were those babies. Who These people snatched? are still alive. No, I mean, I'm sorry, pe people that were adopted, adopted, right. you know, people that are discovering they were adopted. Um, you you mentioned babies being born up through 1972, right? Mm -hmm. So like, that's, that's like yesterday. This, this, this is like very recent history. Um, and, and maybe that's part of, part of the, the heaviness um, is that this is, this is, this is still alive in people's, it's, this makes sense. It's still alive in people's history. It's still alive in consciousness, still alive in their, in their living experience. Um, so that being said, um, can you speak at all to the ways that the adoptive industry has changed? I was just going to go there. Where's the hope? <laughs> I was just, I was just, I was just going to go there. Well, the hope is um, adoption fraud still exists. There are, you know, there is still deceit um, on all sides of of the the deceit that that I talk about in the book is that birth mothers were deceived, adoptive families were deceived, and adoptees were deceived. They were all deceived. Everybody was told the adoption agencies really played God. They um, created fictitious origins for about the, the babies themselves, for the adoptive parents, and for the birth parents, they created fictitious um, destinations. Oh, your baby's going to go live with a diplomat, or your baby's going to mm -hmm. go live with a college professor who's got a circular driveway. That was routine. And adoptees, of course, were deceived with the narrative that their mothers didn't want them and um, their mothers loved them so much they gave them to someone else to raise. Uh, and that is a foundational lie, of course. Imagine what that does to your sense of trust. Oh, the person who was supposed to love you most in the world uh, made the choice not to, not to raise you and to give you to strangers. I don't think so. I don't think that's a very reassuring narrative. That's uh, still used, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, because I, if so, you before now, I would have said like that's what you say. <laughs> but here's here's what changed. Okay, so in 1973, when Roe v. Wade was passed, women had far more reproductive choices. Single motherhood became much more acceptable. Birth control became uh, far more available, and something had to change in this secretive system. So across the country, it sort of happened um, organically in a variety of different places. Adoption social workers realized, look, we have to give these birth parents, these birth mothers a choice about what's happening. They are already, if they're unable to raise a child on their own, by then the, the research was clear that, um, it was difficult on adoptees to not know their origin stories. And it was certainly difficult on birth mothers to not be able to know what had happened to their sons and daughters. So even it began with adopt birth mothers uh, providing maybe some medical history, full medical history and some photographs and then evolved to a much more open arrangement where the birth mother actually chose the family with whom she wanted to place her children. And then in the best of all possible worlds can remain a part of the child's life, mm -hmm. a part of the, her son or daughter's life. And that gives the adoptee the ability to integrate his or her what, you know, okay, this is my, this is how I came into the world this is my birth mother, this is my, these are my adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more, it, I mean, it just makes so much sense that you don't have big secrets that way. You understand, okay, well, this is why my birth mother made the choice she did. And these are the people who are raising me and I've got this, that's how, that's how open adoption is when it works and when it works well, that's how it is supposed to look but it is still 
a very difficult, you know, I don't want to be all doom, doom and gloom either, but, you know, we need to, we need to realize and be very open about the fact that adoption begins with loss, period, full stop. It begins with a rupture and ruptures are trauma. And even if it's a very happy, wonderful, I mean, I don't know what celebrity adoptions actually look like, you know, on the, on the inside of them. I mean, oh, how cool you get to be raised by a, you know, a, a, a superstar. Mm-hmm. But what is that like on the inside? That mm-hmm. superstar mother and that superstar father might be extraordinarily good parents, but even so, mm-hmm. where is that, you know, where is that connectivity to, to, to your, your own genetic tree, to your own family tree, to your own family history, to people who look like you? people who like vinegar. I mean, I hear these stories from people. Oh, I grew up in this household where they were, everybody loves sweets. I can't stand sweets, I have a salt tooth. That, that, those are the kind of really small, but they're not small details, they're huge. If you grow up in a household where you have to be 18, before you really discover that you can indulge your your salt tooth because at that point you're able to bite your own food or choose your own food when you go off to college it sounds crazy right but it's not mm-hmm. that is that is trying to fit a round peg into a square hole right for a really long time and it's mysterious and difficult yeah yeah so so in, in the research that there are still, what do you, do you what, what would you say still needs to change around the adoption? Um, do we call it the adoption industry, adoption culture? I think adoption should not be secret. Mm-hmm. Everything about adoption should be open. Adoptees deserve the right to know who and where they come from, regardless of, a, of, of or, or regardless of whether it is an orphanage in Ethiopia or the girls who were adopted from China who are now coming of age and are, you know, finishing college and launching their own, you know, early adulthoods. Mm-hmm. Everybody deserves to know more than just the, 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 you know, the bare outlines of, of their stories. I've heard so many, a lot of it from a lot of adoptive fathers actually, who say, oh, I'm a father of two adopted daughters from China. And they were just plunked down in a rice paddy and um, that's how we got them. And I, to me, I just want to say, whoa, that is such a reductive story of your daughter's life and you owe it to your daughter to try to help her find out more. So me, I just think, I'm not saying that we should not have adoption. Of course, Mm -hmm. sometimes parents Mm -hmm. are unable to raise the children they conceive and bring into the world, but we should abolish secrecy around adoption. That's what I believe. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. It's so complex. So, but opening up, opening up the conversation, opening up communication, stopping the secrets. That's really like the, the theme uh, these days, um, you know, especially in the NPE community, but yeah. Um, and, and what would you, do you think that you had what was the most, because I already I asked you about what surprises there were, but um, has there been an, un, any un, unexpected outcomes from this project that you, you didn't see coming? No, and I think because I had 
covered adoption as a reporter, mm-hmm. I was aware mm-hmm. of what some of the reactions were going to be. There has been uh-huh. some, right. there has been some defensiveness on the part of adoptive parents. Um, there's a lot of when I'll give talks, there's a lot of response along the lines of my adoptee doesn't think that way. That's not how my adoptee, and it's there's there's just a, there's a defensiveness there, so that that didn't surprise me. And uh, I need to find the language to be able to gently uh, approach that in a way that does provide for more openness without being accusatory. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard from a lot of adoptees who are disappointed with their birth families oh yeah a lot of adoptees are disappointed with their birth families um and some and more than i expected in the so let us just go i don't mean to be so wonky here but in the states that have allowed birth mothers to redact their names so mm-hmm. a couple states handful of states new jersey being one of them fewer than one half of one percent of the mothers. So let me just back up. In New Jersey, New Jersey passed a law allowing the opening of uh, original birth certificates in 2014. It gave mothers a two-year, birth mothers a two-year window to redact their names. So with the law eventually opening um, the birth certificates on January 1st, 2017. So again, one half of one percent of all birth mothers chose to redact their names. It could be that many of those mothers may live in California and they weren't up to date on New Jersey adoption law changes. But even so, typically, you know, in 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 the states that have done that that have offered that, that is a, that is a re- it's a fraction of one percent. Tiny, 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 tiny amount tiny, of tiny. people. But I've also heard from a number of people who have more than that, you know, so in other words, more than mm-hmm. a fraction of 1% mm-hmm. who, and maybe it's just, you know, representative who, who chooses to write to me, who's, who adoptees, who, whose birth mothers have refused contact. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. has been, um, that, that's really sad. Something mm-hmm. else that's so incredibly painful um, is when uh, adoptees learn that their, their birth parents have passed away. Yeah, that is, I cry every time. I'm going to cry just right now, just thinking about, oh, I finally worked up the courage to be able to um, take a DNA test and to, to uh, uh, file away for vital statistics for the, you know, in states that have opened to file Mm -hmm. for my original birth certificate. And I discovered that my birth mother had died three years before or eight years before, or that is just devastating because along with that loss is the story. It's gone. It's gone. Not only were those records lost all those years, the story is gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that uh, has yeah. been, that has been uh, very powerful mm-hmm. to hear from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and what do you think, do you have any, anything, mm, how do I want to ask this, uh, that you, f- that you feel like, What would be your what would what is do you feel like with this with this project you have you have a book but do you have an ultimate goal? Oh, without a doubt, I am absolutely squarely um, in the camp of every single state opening, giving adoptees absolute open access to their original birth certificates. That is my hope. My hope was to draw attention to this secretive system. And especially during this period of national reckoning of our social injustices, that is a gigantic one. Equality at this moment where we are looking at our own racist history 
our own racist present, we need to extend what equality looks like for everybody. And there is a whole class of people who adoptees who, who, who are lacking the human and civil right to, you know, I, I keep, I keep saying it, uh, you know, to access their origin story. There are, just think about it. Okay. 3.5 million adoptees from that period. Add another, um, about a million and a half other adoptees, many of whom were adopted from overseas and people who were not counted in those statistics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are as many, there's an, and the, the government doesn't track adoptions. It used to, it did briefly and imperfectly and, and um, partially. There are an estimated five to 6 million adoptees living in the United States today. And just add the millions of people who are connected to those mm -hmm. adopted people, millions upon millions, their parents, their birth parents, their siblings, their children. This is something that ripples and ripples and ripples and ripples. So yes, my hope is that we draw attention that I, you know, that, that, that this book, that this work, that these podcasts, that your podcast, the work that you're doing to draw attention to the secrecy of your experience. It's, to me, it's, it's, it's high time that we examine our secret pasts and I have to hand it to you to, you know, do what you're doing and to not only recover from the shock, but then turn around and, and, and put the shock to work. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like putting it that way. Absolutely. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I had asked you? Is there anything that the really good interviewees, interviewers always ask? I think you really covered it. I also really love how you uh, identified with the story of Margaret as a young woman who had had a, a baby as a single mother and then as someone who's got a 17 year old daughter. I also have three daughters and my youngest was a teenager when I was, she was still a teenager, she's 19. Um, but she was a teenager when, when I started writing the book and it was about a four year process. So she was probably 13, 14, she was probably 13, 14 when I started and just watching her go through young adolescence in the late 2010s, mm -hmm. all the while talking to Margaret, who's the protagonist of the book, the, the birth mother um, involved in the book Mar and Margaret and I became extremely close and she lives about 45 minutes from me when there's no traffic and mm -hmm. It was just these those, these bookends of of looking at this this woman's experience. She's now a grandmother, and and seeing it through my daughter's eyes, and also remembering the shame of the shame of sexuality during the years, even when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. I remember once I lied to my mother and said that a friend's parents were going to be home. And of course they weren't. And it was a Saturday afternoon and my mom found out that I, you know, had lied and she came back and sort of yanked me out of the basement and, and it was humiliating and, and frightening and I got grounded and, and, and I still, I, 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 I just wonder what was going through her head. Was she afraid I was mm -hmm. going to be pregnant? What was, you know, what was, was it that she was afraid we were up to no good, which we weren't, somebody had a, you know, somebody had a joint. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, just, you know, I, I've, I've, I've reflected on my own, well, you know, my own upbringing, how I brought up three girls, what it's like today. Um, that's been, 
that's that's been a powerful thing as well to to look at how luckily how times have changed and how we are accepting of young women's sexuality in a way so that much we, more mm-hmm. so yeah much, so much so much more but, but yeah work to be done but yes, indeed and and I can say that as a you know, the observer of society. And then also as a mother, it's hard. It's very, very hard and complex, harder than I, <laughs> it's harder than I imagined it would be. Um, not in, I mean, that sounds like I was very naive going into parenting and I was, I was 22, but, um, but I just thought, I thought I'm so open and communicative and it's, it still hasn't been, um, a straight path or, a, you know, to dealing with, um, my, my own daughter's, development and exploration of the world and what I'm comfortable with and what I want her to be comfortable with and what she's comfortable with me being, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's just complex. You know, and you, I look back and I think there were things about which I was not terribly, um, intentional. I just sort of was reflexive on some certain things. Mm -hmm. And, and I wish, I wish I could go back and I know this doesn't really have to do with the book, but I wish I could go back. It has given me really a different lens to go back and look at the messages I was transmitting, the messages I continue to transmit. And, you know, I remember I wouldn't let my daughters get their ears pierced until they were 12 or 13. Why? You know, <laughs> what's that about? Where did that come from? Right. <laughs> Where did that come from? And what did that mean? What was I conveying with that? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, so many things, so many small, small things that add up mm-hmm. into a life, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And it, and I, I keep coming back around to this so often um, in this podcast and, um, and uh, it, it all, it's just comes back to feminism. <laughs> just so much comes back to the way that women are treated and the rights of women and the um, legal, le- legal, literal rights of women and the um, societal community con- conversation rights of women. And um, so this, you know, this book is about adoption, but like I said, it's about so many other things, really. One, yeah, one thing I didn't, I, I forgot to mention, which was just shocking to me, to discover that premarital sex was actually a crime mm-hmm. on the books in New York state until 1971. It was a crime. Until 1971. Margaret Earl, who's the protagonist of the book, did not, Margaret Earl Katz, she did everything she could to try to keep custody of her son as a young teenage mother. But at the end of the day, she was threatened with legal action. She didn't sign surrender papers for the crime of having sex before marriage. It's that's pretty shocking. 1971. Finally, those laws were allowed to expire. Yeah, she did. She does everything. I mean, can you just imagine? I mean, of course you can imagine this was your book, but I just, I just think about all the planning she did and how meticulous they were and they didn't even have the internet and how. Right. And diligent she was. Yeah. At the end of the day, she didn't, even though she was defying her parents, even though she was defying her religious community, even though she was defying you know, she, she, she sort of went through these concentric circles of how, how she, how much she didn't care what people thought she was Mm going to keep her baby and marry her baby's father. At the end of the day, she was thwarted by New York state law, which made premarital sex a crime Mm -hmm. until 1971. So yeah, that's, that was shocking to me. She didn't have a leg to stand on once that was, and nobody explained it to her, of course. Right. Of course. So, yep. Yeah. So difficult. Well, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for sharing these stories. I'm, um, I'm so grateful that it, 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 it came across my, this, 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 this opportunity came across, kind of came across my lap, um, came across my desk. Um, I'm, uh, it's really, it's really got me, I mean, just, for lack of a more articulate, it's like really opened my mind or a more original way to say it. it's really opened my mind, but it's just got me thinking. Um, there's just so much to think about the way that we do things um, in this country when it comes to parenting and family and children and uh, and birth. We just have so, so much to, to think about and work on. Um, and I and I and your book, I just can't even 
I can't recommend it enough to people. It just, I really think people need to know about, um, about what went on and then what there is still to do and, and, you know, legit, legally and logistically, there's a lot to do, but, but also just within the, just the paradigm, just the paradigm and the conversation around adoption. Um, there just needs to be more awareness. Well, about all sorts of issues that are secret and secretive. And um, I really have to hand it to you. I really appreciate your having me on and your kind words and your generous appraisal. And um, I'm really intrigued by, by the work that you do and think it's just so important. And um, yeah, there's a lot we have yet to continue to, to, um, to work on. Yeah, yeah, but maybe if we, you know, between the two of us, um, you know, the conversation is growing and that's all we can do. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank yeah. you so much for your Thank time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Y'all. <laughs> uh, so right after I talked to Gabrielle, I flew to the East coast for the Hereth hope and healing retreat which I have talked about before. Um, and I read, so I read the rest of American baby on the flight home and I cried. Uh, it was so awkward because I was, uh, on the plane and I, I'm no longer embarrassed about crying, but I was wearing a mask as a law abiding passenger, but it was so weird to cry and then while wearing a mask and I would try to wipe my nose and it was like everything was a mess. Like I just felt like such a mess. But anyway, the, the book just really um, took over. It was a lot. So anyway, great book. Lots to think about. So much is being uncovered and discussed about the adoption world. And this is a must read if you are paying attention to this or care about the way we do things. And you should care. You should pay attention. <laughs> that is the whole point of this podcast. Uh, it is just multifaceted and multilayered and very complex. And this information is so important. Also, um, if you care about this podcast, uh, which is just a teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny variable in the world of NPE information, um, would you please make sure that you're telling your friends about it and make sure that you are following us on all the socials like Instagram and Facebook. It's Everything's Relative Podcast. And oh, hey, did you know that I have tote bags now? So I do. Um, they're cute and hey, tote bags are reusable and they're perfect for just a few groceries or your favorite book. They actually, now that I think about it, Tote bags are the perfect size for carrying around a recreational DNA kit. If you're into that, um, if you want a tote bag, message me. Um, I will send one your way. This time around, um, I I have paid for them. I have already I've paid for them. Just pay me for the shipping. Um, and if you want one to, to me to ship you a bag, I will. Um, and then at some point, I'll get like an official merch store going, and all this will be up on the website eventually. But um, I guess for now, like, I'll just put pics up on the Instagram and the Facebook page. And remember in season two, when I talked with Kimberly and she said she was trying to start a business, she made these bags all the way from Kansas. Uh, so you can support me a little bit by buying a tote bag. And then it helps because you're spreading the word by using your tote bag and everybody wins. Uh, one other way to support me with potentially less cost to you than even the shipping is to become a Patreon member. Um, choose a membership level support everything's relative for as little as like a dollar a month uh i promise you will get perks one of them might be a tote bag uh and some special events that i'm still working on don't worry they really are coming uh just go to patreon it's become a patron on patreon it's all sorts of confusing uh but that's what you do come to my website if you need help or send me a message anyway no matter what come back next week I will be exploring DNA discoveries because that's what I do. Have a great week, everybody. Please wash your hands. Take your vitamins. Don't forget to walk the dog. I'm Eve Sturgis. Bye-bye. 
Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Kaylin Egan and Eve Sturgis. Eve is a licensed therapist in the state of California, but conversations on this podcast are not therapy sessions. This podcast is edited by Stephanie Dilanzik, the logo design is by Ivy McNally, and the music is used with permission by Goodbye the Band. Hi, Adam Peacock from My Neighbors Are Dead here. Each week on My Neighbors Are Dead, I talk to the tertiary characters real and imagined from your favorite horror films. But this summer, we're doing something different. We are taking you to the northern woods of Michigan, all the way up to Whitlow Lake, to bring you the original tale of the My Neighbors Are Dead summer camp massacre. We're bringing back some fan favorites of the show as we try to piece together through interviews with survivors, witnesses, and with any luck, the killer Chad himself. We're going to try to piece together exactly what the hell happened up there at Camp Willow Lake. It starts June 22nd and it runs all summer long. That's the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.